At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. How the gold has become tarnished, the fine gold become dull. The stones of the temple lie scattered at the head of every street. Zion's precious children, once worth their weight in pure gold, how they are regarded as clay jars, the work of a potter's hand. Even jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young, but my dear people have become cruel, like ostriches in the wilderness. And then go to verse 11. The Lord has exhausted his wrath. He's poured out his burning anger. He has ignited a fire in Zion. And it has consumed her foundations. The kings of the earth and all the world's inhabitants did not believe that an enemy or adversary could enter Jerusalem's gates. Yet it happened because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed the blood of the righteous within her. Blind, they stumbled in the streets, defiled by this blood, so that no one dared to touch their garments. Verse 17, all the while our eyes were failing as we looked in vain for help. We watched from our towers for a nation that would not save us. Verse 20, the Lord's anointed, the breath of our life was captured in their traps. We had said about him, we will live under his protection among the nations. So rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom, you resident of the land of Uz. If the cup will pass to you as well, you will get drunk and expose yourself. Daughter Zion, your punishment is complete. He will not lengthen your exile, but he will punish your iniquity, daughter Edom, and will expose your sins. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we, um, we just stand before this, this word of yours, this text, and it sobers us. It, it shows us, Lord, just uh, destruction and despair and, and shows us what ruin looks like. And, and Father, my prayer today would be that we would long not to be on that road, that we would not long to see that ruin in our own lives. So by your grace, Father, help us to, to receive your word, to see, to see this warning for what it is, is help and grace from you so that we might turn to you and that we might experience and know the hope that you are for us in Christ Jesus. Help us to see your fatherly love and even your fatherly kindness in discipline uh, so that we are corrected and humbled and, and we, Lord, glorify you. So, Spirit of God, now take your word and work it in our hearts. Move through us today and and change us for your glory. We are listening and we are ready, and we thank you for your love. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And you can be seated. Well, dads, again, happy Father's Day to you, but I want to I do a little survey this morning, a little, uh, maybe a little time for some confession uh, here for each of us uh, fathers. It's, it seems to me that dads are the ones who are most notorious when in driving their vehicles and, and navigating around a city or a, a place or wherever it might be, dads are the ones who know where they are going, 
uh, who have figured it out, and uh, there is no one who will tell us, right or wrong, that we are on the wrong road. Uh, in fact, we're, we're pretty obstinate when it comes to that sort of thing, that, that we know the right directions, we know how to get there, and we don't need help or information from anybody else. Uh, Dad's just any confession uh, that would go along with that, that's, that's you in the car. Like, you've been sitting there with your, okay, a few, thank you. You know, a few of you have been in the vehicle, and, and you're maybe a little lost, and uh, you're perhaps you're your spouse or your children or maybe a friend who's there with you is like, hey, I, should, I think you should have taken that left-hand turn there. And you're like, no, 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 I have a better way to go. And inevitably, you, you land somewhere you didn't intend to land, right? Any, any honest people here today? Any honest dads? Well, I, for one, am, okay? I'll just, I'll just bear this out for you. Thank you for those two of you that were honest uh, with us this morning. Yeah, about uh, uh, last summer, uh, our family's on vacation, we're out in Colorado, and we're, we're up in the mountains, and my grandparents live uh, in the city of Golden, Colorado, just right outside of the, uh, right outside of the city of Denver, uh, up on the hills, and, and from where we were staying, it's just a run down the mountains along a, a pretty good road through Boulder, and, uh, and then you just stay to the right uh, when you get to that intersection in Boulder, and you can just kind of skirt around the back way to my grandparents' house, um, not too far down the road. Um, for whatever reason, last summer, as we're headed down the hill, I kind of got distracted or just kind of missed the obvious sign that told me to stay to the right, and I, I just kind of kept going on the highway uh, to the left uh, from, from where we should, and the, and the road began to confuse me. I know that road like the back of my hand. I could get to my grandparents' house in my sleep. I just, I know how to get there, and yet that road confused me, and, and so I took the, the left road, the highway road, and, and all of a sudden, I'm in a place where I'm not really sure where. I am, except I know where I am because I grew up there. I mean, this, is, this is my hometown. I've got it. I've figured it out. So I just lean over to Stephanie, and, and this is not her fault, but I lead to Stephanie, and I say to her, I say, hey, I, I'm just a little confused at this moment. Can you put my grandparents' uh, you know, in, address into, the, into their phone, into the GPS? It'll just give us the directions. We'll get there just fine. Well, it was a little, it was a miscommunication on my fault. Uh, she puts in the community that my grandparents live in, Golden, uh, into the GPS, not the specific address. And all of a sudden, the GPS starts taking us left and right and around, and, and we're in some neighborhoods that, I, I, where are we, you know, kind of thing. But I, in my, you know, self-reliant independence, oh, you know what, my grandparents, they live off of Indiana, and I find Indiana, I'm like, we're just going to go down Indiana. And Stephanie's like, I don't know, this doesn't look right. And I'm like, I got it, I got it, I got it. And finally, we realized I had missed the signs. I'd ignored it, and we were, we were scheduled to be there around noon that day. It was like 1 o'clock when we finally showed up. My grandparents were worried, and it was like, I just wasn't paying attention to the obvious road signs. So here I am confessing to you my own failure in that. I have an obstinate heart sometimes when it comes to obvious signs that point me in the right direction. I wonder if you do too. I'm not just talking about dads here, okay, all of us here. How many of us truly miss the warning signs that tell us we're on the road to ruin. Are you ignoring some of those obvious road signs? Some of those clear markers that say, hey, the path you're headed on, not good. It will lead you to destruction. It will lead you to ruin. Is that, is that maybe your situation today? Could, could you be one who is ignoring obvious signs from the Lord? You may say, well, what are the signs? I don't, I don't know. I, I wasn't aware that there were signs, and maybe perhaps you know that there are, but you're really willing to ignore what God places in front of you to see. This chapter in Lamentations 4, this poem, 
It is a, a big billboard for us about what it looks like to live on the road to ruin. In fact, throughout this entire chapter, there are some specific signs that tell us, here's where it is. And if you're seeing these signs in your own life and you're ignoring them, you can for sure count on the fact that you are on a road to ruin and destruction, that you're in the streets of of ruin itself. And so I want us to see this passage. You might ask, why is Lamentations 4 in the Bible? I mean, it's really depressing. It's sad. It feels like this whole book is just kind of this, this depressed anguish. And so why is it here? This chapter is here for us to be a mirror. It's to give us some lessons learned. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is useful for us. And in particular, it, if we will, if we'll be humble, it will, it will stand before us, we will stand before it, and it will show us, this passage shows us here, the signs. It shows us how we know we are on the road to ruin. God is inspired given us his word today as followers of Jesus. And these things have happened in Israel and Judah as lessons to teach us. God is showing us his grace here to say, this is, the people of Israel ignored this. They ignored the signs. They ignored the obvious ways in which they were on the road to ruin. And I don't want that for you. God doesn't desire that for us this morning. He wants us to see these signs so that we'll go, oh, we, we are on a road to ruin. And so that we will repent and that we will receive and experience God's love and grace, and we will change and grow and, and flourish, not be destroyed. So this morning, I want to take us here to, to Lamentations 4, and I want to show us three signs that demonstrate we are on the road to ruin. Now, this is, this is a, a lament. It's a cry out from from the people of Judah, Jeremiah the prophet was probably the poet who, who wrote this. It's another cry out to say, God, here's how horrible things are. Here's this cry in particular is one that's just, it just feels like it has no hope in it. It does at the very end there, but it's, it's saying of, of us and our hearts, like, God, this, this destruction that you brought upon the city of Jerusalem in 587 BC, it's horrific. And yet in that, it's, it's showing us these signs so that, so that we don't follow along this path that Judah did, but that we will walk in the ways of life and liberty, and glory, and freedom. The poet here is looking back. Remember, hindsight is twenty twenty. So he's looking back and he's going, man, we missed these obvious signs. And here they are. I want to share with us three of them this morning so that we can know if we're onto the road to ruin. And then at the end, I want to help us to see how to get off the road to ruin uh, today. So let's look at the signs first of all. The first sign is this. It's a, it's a clear sign. You know you're on the road to ruin when people become worthless. When people become worthless to you, it is a clear evidence that you're headed to ruin and destruction. Now the poem, and the poet here again laments what's happening in a city. Jerusalem has been destroyed. And he's not just lamenting the destruction of uh, buildings and the, the tearing down of the temple But he's focusing on people in and of itself here. He focuses on the horrific and graphic result of the siege of Jerusalem and the the toll that it takes on the lives of people themselves. You could look at verses 1 through 10, and to summarize it, you could say it's a movement from beauty and value to to waste and destruction. What's, What's beautiful and good is turned into ashes, and it's destroyed it's a literal loss of everything that is good. 
And yet the destruction isn't, the, the, the tragedy isn't so much that buildings are torn down, as bad as that is, it's that there's a huge devaluing and devastation of human life. Look with me here. I'll just point out a few verses for us to see what this looks like. Verse 1 speaks about the destruction of the city in terms of its, its buildings and the value there. The gold has become tarnished. The fine gold become dull. He's looking and thinking about the temple that was gilded in gold, and it's like it's all gone. It's, it's ruined. It's, it's got that, that tarnish on it. It's dull. It has no brilliant vibrancy about it. Even the stones of the temple, these beautiful marble stones, are scattered all about. They're at the head of every street. It's like the temple, the place of God's presence with his people. It's just scattered and ruined and spread abroad. Beauty, strength, endurance, it's all gone. It's, it's wasted away. But verse 2 takes us then, the next stanza in the poem, takes us to, to life, human life. Zion's precious children, the poet says, once worth their weight in pure gold. So, so you get this sense of, of the city and the children in the city. Imagine a vibrant, bustling city with, with kids running and playing and laughing and having a great time, and you just feel like the, your heart lifts, and you, you enjoy that. But now, these precious children, once worth their weight in gold, they're regarded as clay jars. Don't miss the contrast here. Pure gold now to clay jars, valued to, to common and worthless. You just discard them in the street. Nobody would care. The work of a potter's hand is just empty. The transition, the, the contrast there is seeing this movement from glory and value to nothing, nothing at all. In verse 3, it gets even more desperate. The writer makes a contrast between the animal kingdom and nature with what's happening in the city. Jackals offer their, jackals are like the, the howling hyenas, like the worst of all dogs, you know, kind of thing. Even those creatures offer their breasts to nurse their young, they, they care for their babies, but but look in the city. The worst of the dogs, they're taking care of their young, but my dear people have become cruel. The transition is there. They, they're like ostriches in the wilderness. I've never met an ostrich in the wilderness, but I imagine it's a mangy beast and nobody wants to hang around with that thing, just pecking around. That's what they're like. These people are cruel. They're vicious. What was valued is now turned to loss. Verse 4. The nursing baby's tongue clings to the roof of his mouth from thirst. There's no supply. There's no milk. There's no, there's no sustenance. It's just empty infants beg for food, but no one gives them any. Just, just put that picture in your mind for just a moment. Walking along the, in the streets, and there's not just one or two children, but all of the children of the community. Begging crying out, we're hungry, feed us, help, and everyone disregards them. No one cares for them. The extreme of this passage is reached in verse 10, and it is graphic. It's horrific. The hands of compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became their food during the destruction of my dear people. Now, we should just put our hands over our mouth there. This is not poetic license. This is horrific history. It's devastating. 
You see just how life has been treated as nothing and worthless. Compassionate mothers eating their children. Oh, the horror of that. And you think, what does it take for a people to get to this desperate and, and this deep of a place that they devalue each other to this extent? What does it take to get a compassionate mom to become a cannibal? Now, this wasn't an overnight shift. It wasn't something that just one day they wake up and like, here we are. It was the progression of treating people as worthless. It was the devaluing of people over a long stretch of time. It was the conclusion of the road to ruin that they had been on, a road marked with desecrating the image of God in one another as people in their own eyes and value, became worthless. Now, I know it's one thing for us to read this and go, Poor, that's, that's horrible. And, and yet, I think many of us will read that and go, well, good thing that'll never happen to us, right? I mean, that we'll never get there. We're too sophisticated or civilized. I mean, that's barbaric. That would never be us. However, being, being on the road to ruin is ignoring the signs that tell us we're headed in that direction. We can acknowledge, and we should, that our culture is on this road to ruin right now. We, as a culture, treat people, treat human beings created in the image of God as worthless. It's a cultural reality among us today. The abortion industry bears this out as precious lives are murdered every day. Human life is worthless. The elderly are marginalized. They're moved out of sight, lest we have to be confronted with aging and, and feebleness and even death. We just get them out of the way. People of color are marginalized in our society. They're redlined merely because of the, the color of their skin, their ethnicity. We mock the poor and we ignore them because they don't possess the, the ability or the skill set from our vantage point to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Our culture is just a culture of, of devaluing people, and, it, and it's all of us. And I know the tendency for us is to think, ah, yes, it's the culture. It's out, out there, out of these walls. It's not, it's not in here. It's not us. It's that secular, pagan, wicked culture out there that's just pounding its way down on us. But, but friends, we're in that culture. And culture is, is what we make. And the reality is that we as people in this room, we, we can treat people as worthless, image bearers of God. We're on that road to ruin perhaps as well. Let me, let me just point out a way, a few ways. We, we don't want to just think of it as culturally out there, but individually in here in our own lives, one, I just want to point out a few ways that we can be on that road to ruin as we devalue other people, as we devalue other human beings. One is when we treat people as commodities. When, when, we, when we look at other human beings and we say, you know what, they are good for me, and, and they are, when they are helping meet my needs and, and care for my soul and make me happy and, and supply whatever emotional, relational, spiritual, whatever it is, whenever they're fulfilling my purposes and needs, then I like them and I value them. But, but the moment that they don't provide anything for you, well, you just ignore them, turn them away. Don't find value in them, don't have to deal with them, don't have to talk to them, 
They're just out there. We ignore them. When we treat people as commodities relationally, we devalue people. We, We devalue people by our words. Think about what we say about other image bearers, other people. I mean, consider your speech. Consider your social media words. When we, when we use slurs, when we, when we use terms to mock other image bearers of God, other human beings, when we use hateful words to describe people that are different from us, even if we perceive them to be on the wrong side or on the other side of the aisle from where we would be, Our words carry value, and what we say about other human beings either props up their value as human beings, or it denigrates their value as human beings. And so do we mock? Do we slander? Do we just make a joke about someone else, but yet we pick terms to devalue them? The porn industry, Hollywood, HBO... It's a people-devaluing industry as human beings made in the image of God are treated as objects to satisfy lust and personal pleasure. They are trafficked and traded as slaves in order to prop up money-making industry. When When we go to those things for pleasure, when we watch porn, when we... don't care for others visually. We are satisfying our lust and we are devaluing human beings. What about even in your heart? Let's just take it to that level. Are there there people that you would just like wish didn't exist? They were dead? Do you you just hope for the extermination of, of whole groups of other people? Maybe it's not a group, but maybe it's just a neighbor? Or do you do you look forward to the day when like the people that didn't vote the way you did are just gone? They're out of here? Or, or the, the people who have different political view, viewpoints or religious persuasions? And we know that there's sin and there's fallenness and we want to call all people to Christ and to, to trust Him. But if we hope for the eradication of the other, we're just devaluing humans. We're on the road to ruin. Here's the point. When we degrade people... We're on this road. There's a clear sign. If you're devaluing people, road to ruin is calling you. The GPS is telling you that's the the end point. And yet the scriptures are clear that God has made us in his image. God has made all of us in his image. God in his glory created humanity, male and female, to bear and carry his image. And yes, because of the fall and because of sin, the image of God in all of us is marred. It's hidden. It's tarnished. But that doesn't mean that we get the right to devalue human beings because the image is marred and flawed. We don't have the go-ahead to devalue other people. And so here's the clear sign for us. When we treat people as worthless, we are on the clear road to ruin. Are you seeing that sign? As you journey along, is that, is that evident in your life and heart? We'll deal with how to, how to recover in just a moment, but I want you to see the sign. The second sign for us to see is that unrighteousness is dismissed. Now, this has to do within the people of God, but it's one that exists even in culture as well. Verses 11 through 16 bear this out. 
Not only is the sign that people are devalued a sign that we're on the road to ruin, but, but when we dismiss unrighteousness, when we excuse away evil, when we brush sin under the rug, it's a sign for us. It's, here's, the, here's the broadcast. You're on a road to ruin when sin doesn't bother you, when it's just excused away, when it's justified. Here, here's where the poet laments. He, he looks in verse 11 and he says, God's anger and wrath is on us. He's bringing his heavy hand of discipline on us. The Lord has exhausted his wrath, poured out his burning anger. He has ignited a fire in Zion, and it has consumed her foundations. Simply to say, God burned down the city. He's destroyed us. What was, once was seen as a, a, an invincible fortress in the city of Jerusalem is what verse 12 speaks about. The kings of the earth and all the world's inhabitants did not believe that an enemy or adversary could enter Jerusalem's gates. What was seen as impregnable, like that city sit on a hill, huge wall around it. The nations looked at that city and said, nobody can take that fortress. It's not going to fall at all. God does something there that protects those people. And yet, God does whatever he wants. Nothing is impossible for him. So God pours out his wrath. He he pours out his justice. And the city that was once thought invincible is now laid waste. It's in ruins. Why did that happen? Verse 13, yet it happened because, note this here, because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. God starts there immediately with the leadership. As the leadership goes, so go the people. As the leadership goes, so goes the church. God has brought his righteous justice and discipline upon that people because of the sins of the prophets, the iniquities of the priest, the leadership brushing sin under the rug. The last line of verse 13. The priests and the prophets shed the blood of the righteous within her. Blind, they stumbled in the streets, defiled by this blood, so that no one dared to touch their garments. The leadership of the community, they took advantage of the people. They, they killed the righteous among them. They abused the city. They abused the people, and they led the people into further wickedness themselves. Everyone's guilty here, but as the leaders go, so go the people. So God, too, brings his justice. He brings ruin upon them. This is a sure sign of being on the road to ruin when sin, when unrighteousness is excused. It's, it's like they murdered people. Everybody's okay with it. You know, those guys that are, that are saying, no, we need to go back to the ways of the Lord, and then the priests and the prophets are like, no, you're done, and they murder them. Everybody applauded that. It was the right thing to do in their eyes, and yet it was spiritual blindness. I like to think of this as spiritual erosion. In Northern California, along the coast of the Sonoma uh, County and Mendocino County there, there's these massive and beautiful homes that are, that are there right up against the coast. And they've been built very close to the cliffside. Over the years of waves hitting those cliffs and, and rocks, there's been significant erosion and degradation of the, of the land itself. And, and yet, people continue to build homes on the sides of those cliffs. The architects and the engineers will say, hey, you know, you got to watch this. Maybe you shouldn't build it too close to the cliff, but, but it's going to be a nice place. And they ignore the, they ignore the fair warnings. And, and it seems like every year, uh, another house just topples into the ocean. 
They built too close. They didn't hear the warnings. Spiritual, they just dismissed the signs altogether. And disaster comes and ruin is there. So it is with unrighteousness in our own lives. It's spiritual erosion. When we know what's right, we know what's true, we know what's good, and yet we dismiss it in our own lives. When, when we push it under the rug, yeah, we can, we can look out in culture. Again, this is, it's very easy for us to look out in culture and go, look, there it all is. I mean, everybody in culture dismisses sin. Wickedness just runs prevalent all over the place. And yeah, it's just it's the slide of culture into ruin for sure. But it's utterly tragic when it's in our own lives in the church. When there's unrighteousness by leadership and it's justified by leadership, by all parties and sides, when we dismiss wickedness by, you know, oh, it's just locker room talk, or we make some other sort of excuses for our leaders, that's danger to us. Or when it's in our own lives, when it's on our side, we may ignore it, but when we see it in the lives of others, we'll point it out and highlight it and exploit it for power. It's, it's a game. The Scriptures call the leaders of the church to be vigilant, to be aware for ourselves and for the church. Paul said to Timothy, take care and watch your doctrine and your lifestyle. And that's something as a pastor and our leaders here at the church, we must be very careful and aware of. It's part of the role of being a pastor, an elder, is having high character. The church together has to discern our hearts. It's a road to ruin in our own lives. If we are dismissing and brushing sin under the rug in our own hearts, I don't mean for you necessarily to start looking around and pointing out the sin in other people, but for you to look within your own heart and ask, am I dismissing sin in my own life? Am I minimizing the thing that shows me I'm on the road to ruin? Are there sins you are dismissing or ignoring because you don't want to confront them in your life? You don't want to have to confess them and say, like, God, I'm wrong. Are you going to be the stubborn man in the car who knows the directions and know how to get there and you're not going to take counsel or wisdom from anybody else? It's a road to ruin when you dismiss and ignore your own unrighteousness. Are, are you okay with a little lust, a little greed, a little slander, a little gossip instead of humbly repenting of your sin? Let me put it like this, sin that is dismissed in your life will not be dismissed with God. He's just and perfect and true. If you want to be on the road to ruin, just ignore it all. Pretend like it doesn't exist in your heart and life, but it will take you to ruin. Judah ignored their sins. They ignored, they actually applauded their sins. They boasted in them, and they were blind and so verse 16, the Lord himself scattered them. He no longer watches over them. The priests are not respected. The elders find no favor. What a tragedy for a people, for a community, a community of faith where God says, no, I'm stepping back. You're scattered, and I'm not going to watch over you any longer. May that not be us. May, may we see the signs that lead to ruin. And humbly repent. Well, sign number one is that we would devalue human life. We would devalue people made in the image of God. Sign number two is that we would dismiss or ignore unrighteousness. But sign number three tells us 
we're on the road to ruin when we seek for help in the wrong places. Now, you get to verse 16 and you feel it, okay? The Lord has scattered them. He no longer watches over them. There's no respect, no blessing, no favor. And most of us would go, okay, if that was me, if I was in that situation, I'd be crying out for help, right? Good, okay, yes, we should cry out for help. And, and you would get a sense that that's what Judah does as well. But the problem isn't so much that they cry out to help, it's to whom are they crying out to help? And, and here we see they are crying out to help in all the wrong places, verse 17. So leadership is ruined, and yet all the while, the poet says, our eyes were failing. We looked in vain for help. You get the picture here. We watch from our towers for a nation that would not save us. They are up on the top of their towers looking out from the city, scanning the horizon, hoping and praying, will that, will that nation come in and save us? Will they show up? Will help arrive? And yet they become exhausted in that. They're, they're looking and straining. Their eyes are so weak because the help isn't coming. Judah is looking for help from the Egyptians to come and knock the Babylonians out, from the Assyrians to come and, and fight their battles for them and take them away, even from the Greeks. And there is no one showing up when Babylon comes to raise the city. God had warned them all over the time. He said, trust in me, look to me. You read the, the prophet Isaiah and God warns them again and again, stop putting your trust in chariots and horses, Stop putting your trust in the Egyptians or the Assyrians. Put your trust in me. And they continually ignored that. But yet they were looking for help in the nations. Somebody's going to show up and save us. And yet God says, there's a nation that's not going to save you. Nobody's going to come to your rescue. Nobody's going to come to your aid. So they turned to themselves for help. They said, if it's not going to come in from the outside, we've got to muster it up ourselves. And so they look within, verse 20 here. They say, the Lord's anointed the breath of our life. He was captured in their traps. We have said about him, we will live under his protection among the nations. And the identification of the one here who's called the Lord's anointed is not pointing forward to the ultimate Messiah, the Lord's anointed, who would rescue his people from their sins. They're looking very short-term and near to the Lord's anointed, the king, the king of Judah, they're thinking he will be the one to save us. They're, they're banking on a political leader in their midst to rescue them and to deliver them. Notice here their idolatry. They call him the Lord's anointed, the breath of our life. <laughs> have, you, have you heard terms like that about political leaders lately? Like, this guy is going to be the one. He's the one who's going to save us. He's our very breath. And you know what happens? He's captured brought about in their traps. They, they idolized him. They, they thought of him so much that they said to themselves, we will live under his protection among the nations. He's going to be the one to save us. He's going to be the one to deliver us. We've got power with him. And it's a vain place to look for help. The king couldn't protect them at all. In fact, Judas king at that time, Zedekiah, he's, he's captured and he's taken away. Jeremiah records this in uh, the book of Jeremiah. Verse, in chapter 39, we read, the Chaldean army, the Babylonian army, pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And they arrested him and brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon's king at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, passed sentence on him there. At Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered Zedekiah's sons before his eyes. And he also slaughtered all Judah's nobles. 
That's the last thing he sees. Then Nebuchadnezzar blinded Zedekiah and put him in bronze chains to take him to Babylon. He was captured in their traps. The one that Israel had put their hope in, that Judah had said, yeah, this guy, he's our breath of life. He's, he's the one who will protect us among all the nations. It's hopeless. He's captured. Do you see the failure here? Instead of turning to the Lord and seeking help from their God, instead of repenting and coming to Him again, they ignored the sign and they looked for help in all the wrong places. The nations and the powers of the world, the political leaders of their day and kings. And the lesson is there for us. The mirror that we look into helps us see when we look to institutions and leaders and politicians and politics of today, we're looking for help in all the wrong places. They cannot save us. They will not save us, no matter who they are. When we personally go looking to help, looking for help in our own wealth, in our own power, in our own security, in our own positions, friends, we're on the road to ruin. The things of this world cannot save us. They will not save us. They will not help us. The call in seeing the sign here is for us to see what Israel did not do. They did not go to the Lord in humble repentance. They did not come to God and say, God, we're wrong. We confess. Have mercy on us. They ignored the signs completely. So let me ask you this morning, do you see these signs in your own life? Again, be be very specific here. Don't look at your neighbor or your spouse or your child and say, do I see the signs in their life? I want you to look at your own life. What about you? Do you see these signs in your heart? Are you devaluing people? Are are you diminishing sin in your own heart? Are you looking for help to save you in things of the world, in the idols that you've propped up and said, they're my breath of life? They are clear signs, friends, clear signs that if you ignore them, you will land in ruin. These signs are here to show us we're on the road to ruin so that we will take God's escape, that we will take his path of grace. And you may say, yeah, I do see some of these signs. They are there in my heart and in my life. What do I do? Well, there's two options here before us or two potential responses, verses 21 and 22. They're personified in daughters. So here today for us fathers, we can think about the way our children respond and think about two daughters here. One daughter is daughter Edom, verse 21 she's talked about, and then at the end of verse 22. The first response that we can have if we see these signs is to be like daughter Edom and celebrate the downfall of others and and not realize that that downfall will be our own too. Daughter Edom, God says, so rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom, you resident of the land of Uz. Yet the cup will pass to you as well. You will get drunk and expose yourself. We, we can reject God's grace. We choose our own way. We could celebrate the de- devaluing of people and the hiding of sin and, and continue to put our hopes in the things of this world and, and be all about ourselves. But notice at the end of verse 22, God will punish your iniquity, daughter Edom. He will expose your sins. You will land in ruin. God will bring about his justice. If that's your heart today, just to, to re- reject, to push away, and to ignore the signs, 
you are acting like daughter Edom, and God will expose your sins. He will punish you. But there's another daughter here, daughter Zion, verse 22. Notice what God says to daughter Zion. Daughter Zion, your punishment is complete. He will not lengthen your exile. Daughter Zion comes to repentance. She sees the signs and she turns to God and she says, God, have mercy on me. I repent, I'm wrong, work a new thing within me, change me. And, and with that repentance, God states, your punishment is complete. The exile that you're under is not extended. And that's because of what Christ has done. You see, this part of Lamentations points us forward to Jesus. It points us forward to the one who takes our punishment and completes it. Your punishment If you repent and come to Christ, your punishment has been completed by Christ on the cross. He died to complete your punishment, to end your exile, to take away sin's penalty. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. He said, we may be in captivity now, but it is the last we will ever have. We may have troubles, but we will never have punishment. We may know affliction, but we will never know wrath. We may go to the grave, but we will never go to hell We will descend into the regions of the dead, but never into the regions of the damned. Because Christ has completed our punishment and his cross. He loves us. And so he calls to us and he says, see the signs. Are they there? Then repent. Come to Christ. Friends, if you are on the road to ruin in your life today, I I would encourage you to humbly repent and trust the Lord to come to Jesus. If you're on the road to ruin, even as a follower of Jesus, you too can repent today. There is grace and mercy and hope for you knowing that Christ has died for your sins to complete your punishment. So don't harden your heart. May, may May the mirror that is up before you right now humble you and soften you. Don't be the foolish man who doesn't take directions, but be the one who, in seeing the mirror of God's word and seeing God's grace, soften your heart, humble yourself, and know the mercy and love of Jesus who died for your sins, that you might walk in his love and grace forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you you do love us and that you have given your son Jesus on our behalf. He has come to complete the punishment for our sins. He has done that on the cross. Lord, today, would we not be hard-hearted, stubborn, but would we be humble before you? Would we see these signs and repent, Lord, as your spirit has illuminated our hearts and minds, God? might we confess our need and trust you. Thank you for your grace and your love. Thank you for your fatherly kindness to us. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us hear our cries, hear our need for mercy, and that you would save today. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.